Please stand with me as we rise to read our sermon text this morning. If you have a Bible with you, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, and if you don't have a Bible with you today, you can use one of the chairback Bibles that should be in front of you, and you'll find uh, this morning's text on page 1016. Uh, we are taking a break through our regularly scheduled series of studies in Daniel as Today represents a special time in the life of our church, as we said earlier, with the ordination of men to the office of elder and some to the office of deacon. Uh, It seems right for us to uh, think carefully about what God requires of leaders in the church, but I trust, as you'll see as I read the text, not just leaders in the church, what what God requires of all of his children in the church as we look at the first seven verses of 1 Peter 5 together. So uh, let me read those verses for us, and then we'll continue on. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we do ask that your grace would surround us this day, that your spirit would fill us uh, to open our minds to your truth, to enable our hearts to receive what we must, that we would know what it means to follow you in faith and repentance, that you would fix our gaze upon our coming Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, I've always uh, tended to think that you can tell a lot about a church by the job descriptions uh, that it possesses for its leaders. Uh, I suppose you might even say that you can tell a lot about a church by whether or not it has job descriptions for its leaders. Uh, I just came across recently a posting in our denomination for a senior pastor position And it was illustrative of this truth as it spent the first 10 pages in its packet outlining the 10 different areas for which the senior pastor was going to oversee the church's ministries. And under each one of those 10 headings, there were a number of bullet points to illustrate the various things that he was expected to do in that congregation with each heading. And if you added them all up after 10 pages, it meant that the congregation, the church leaders there, at least on that search team, they were expecting that the man would come in and oversee 39 different elements to the church's ministry. And then tucked away on page 11 were but two bullet points about the kind of man that he needed to be. And it's a reality that's been altogether endemic to churches in America for far too many decades. A fixation on what leaders do at the expense of who leaders are. Said in a different way, according to terms that would be much more common in our Presbyterian Reformed tradition, a fixation on the leader's gifts while forgetting the leader's graces. 
And if you know your Bible well, and certainly we're going to see it this morning in 1 Peter chapter 5, is that the New Testament authors have a mirror opposite approach. That it's a fixation upon who the leader is. And only that allows him to do what he must do. It's an emphasis on the graces that belong to the leader's life that allow him to do the duties that God does require of him. And we're going to see that along the way in our text in the seven verses before us. And you'll notice the first word of our text, if you have an ESV translation at least in front of you, is simply the word so. You might have a different translation that uses a word like thus or therefore, because the word therefore so, it's just the ordinary New Testament word for therefore. So therefore, uh, Peter's instruction, very famous instruction on church leaders, it hangs in a dependent way on something he's just said. So I wonder if you know anything uh, that Peter has just said in 1 Peter chapter 4. In chapter 4, he, he's talked about this dominant theme, yet again, that belongs to this letter. So I wonder if, if you know anything about the dominant themes in 1 Peter. Well, I can show it to you quite quickly. Uh, the logic that develops the instruction he gives to leaders and members alike, if you just glance back to chapter 4, verse 12 through 13, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Then you skip down to verse 17. He says, It is time for judgment to begin at God's house. For if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey God's gospel? And so this theme of being steadfastly faithful to the Lord in the midst of a suffering exile here on earth is really what Peter's trying to explain to his readers and to his hearers. And so what he's saying by this point in chapter 5, in light of this suffering, present suffering, and in light of that judgment that has already broken into time and space, so therefore... These are the kind of leaders that a church needs. These are the kind of members that a church needs. Because what I want you to see from this text today, the simple theme that I'm trying to draw out from it, is the church we want to have. And it's probably better said, it's really the church that God wants to have. As he gives us the clear teaching in the text. And you'll notice if you glance down at verse 5 of 1 Peter chapter 5, he expands the teaching out to all of those that are listening. So he's going to give particular attention, as we'll notice, to leaders, but then he's going to give particular attention to all of the members. He's going to give particular attention to those who are older, and then he's going to give particular attention to those who, who are younger. So in many ways, what he's saying is, for a church in the midst of its earthly exile, for a church's experience that's so often little more than that of sojourners who suffer, what kind of members does God want in that church? What kind of leaders does God want in that church? Therefore, what kind of church do we want to have? So I want you to see from the first four verses the kind of leaders we want, and then verses 5 through 7, the kind of members we want. As in that leadership section, of course, is going to have immediate application to men being installed this morning as elders and deacons. Immediate application, of course, to those already installed as elders and deacons. But immediate application further, because a number of you know, if you're a member for a number of years here at Redeemer, February, which is soon to begin in just a few days, Lord willing, it's a time in our congregation where we receive nominations for men to serve perhaps in the future as elders and deacons. 
So as some of you might be prayerfully considering men that you might nominate for those gospel offices, well, here's clear instruction on the kind of leaders God wants, the kind of leaders we want, but even expanding it out to the kind of church we, we want to be. So we'll think about, first of all, notice, verse 1, the kind of leaders we want begins actually with uh, Peter saying the kind of leader he is, the kind of leader he was. Because you'll see what he says, verse 1, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Now, some of you might remember uh, this final scene that belongs to, to the Gospel of John. It's, it's after Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's got breakfast there at the beach with his disciples, and he looks at Peter three times and asks him basically the same question. Uh, this man who only days before, hours before, had denied him three times. What does he say? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And each time Peter's saying, yes, I do. And the Lord's answer is, okay. Tend my sheep. You love me. Okay. Feed my lambs. And so what Peter's doing here, because he's a master preacher, certainly one of the best in all of human history, uh, what he's doing is, you know, sometimes when you give certain instruction, uh, a preacher and teacher, they need to establish credibility. And he's establishing credibility along three different lines in verse 1, the first of which is sympathy. Because you see, he says, I'm a fellow elder. Here's one of the, the greatest preachers of Pentecost power in human history. One of the original apostles, the one on whom Christ said, you are the rock. And on this rock, I'm going to build my church. Who's a miracle worker, a master turner of sinners to the Savior. And what does he say? I'm just a fellow elder like you. Certainly, it would have established a noticeable degree of sympathy with those leaders first hearing this in a persecuted context there in the first century. But in God's kindness, doesn't it extend out the, the apostles' sympathy to even leaders around the world today, elders around the world today, knowing that that same spirit that empowered Peter is the same spirit that empowers elders even today. So he establishes sympathy. But notice also authority, as he says, as the text continues, he's also a witness of Christ's sufferings. Uh, kids, you might think about a witness as, as a person, you know, made to stand in, in a witness seat or uh, stand there in the witness box during uh, a trial and they're asked questions about their firsthand experience. And here's Peter saying, I have firsthand experience in, in Christ's sufferings. So what kind of sufferings then did, did Peter have firsthand experience in? Well, he saw the Lord Jesus maligned and misunderstood, criticized and complained about, he was there in the Garden of Gethsemane, close by to the Savior, when the anxiety of the cursed cross of Calvary is causing him to sweat drops of blood. Certainly later on, the Gospels would tell us he was there as he saw the wounds that the nails and the spear struck in the Savior. Uh, he knew the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ intimately, even personally. And he's trying to extend this instruction saying, well, wouldn't you want to listen to such a first-hand apostolic experience of Jesus Christ. And it's not just sympathy and authority, it's future glory. You see, he says, I'm also a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. So this is who's writing. This is who's instructing. This is the one to whom we want to listen. He's established his credibility. Notice the simple command. The overarching central command in verse 2, shepherd the flock that is among you, exercising oversight. I know a 
pastor and a professor that loves to tell the story about a group of, of Christians that had gone to Israel on one of those uh, tours to see the, the land of, of the Bible. And as they there got in the tourist bus and the guide began to speak about the coming days and trip, he was, he was telling them that they needed to keep their eyes out for the number of flocks of sheep that they would see along the way because, of course, uh, this shepherd flock-like metaphor belongs to the sacred pages of Scripture from Old Testament to New Testament, and they would just see it portrayed before their very eyes, and he told them to especially pay attention to the position of the shepherd because he's saying, you know, good shepherds, they, they, they draw from the front. They, they lead from the front. Uh, they don't drive the sheep from the back. And so they get into the bus and uh, they begin down the road. And sure enough, soon enough, a flock is there in sight. But to the guide's shock and certainly the tourist's heart, they saw a shepherd driving from behind. And knowing that his uh, credibility was clearly in the balance there, he stopped the bus and got off the bus, the tourist guide did, and then got down and spoke urgently. And with full gestures out the window, the tourist could see as he was talking to the shepherd. And then after a short amount of time, he bounded back up the steps of the bus, and with some sense of relief on on his face, he just simply told the tourist, oh, good news, that's just the butcher. (laughs) As butchers drive from behind is the point. And... You, you may know your Bible well enough that one of the most cherished metaphors that God has to speak about his relationship to his people is he is the shepherd and they are the sheep. That where uh, leaders can drive from behind, driving them to these arid areas of death. But God is the true shepherd, always leads from the front with patience, with faithfulness, with steadfastness to those green pastures of life. And he's saying there clearly that New Testament elders are to be like that. And the word he uses, notice students, is exercising oversight. It's a word, actually, oversight, that communicates a lot more about faithful leadership in the church than you might realize at first glance. It speaks about the direction there as you have elders looking over the sheep. They can see above the sheep. They can count the sheep that are in front of them. They know precisely who is numbered among them. Uh, But it's not just that, it's also seen over the sheep in terms of being able to look off to the horizon. That that elders must know where they are going. They must know how to to get there safely Uh, with all love and tenderness. If you want to mix the metaphors for a second, you can simply say that that New Testament elders, they're kind of like captains there on the ship in the midst of a storm, where they're, they're, they're lashed, if you will, to their post. And they're always staring off through the winds and the waves, looking to the other side to how we get there safely through all the chaos, all the difficulty, all the challenges that belong to ordinary ministry. And so when he's got the command in place, what you'll notice now in verses 2 through 4 is what Peter does is he establishes his rules for elders and the reward that belongs to elders, to church leaders. And he's got three rules, and they come by way of contrasts. He's got three simple contrasts that he makes in verses 2 and 3. So rule number one is lead willingly. Look at verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, not under compulsion, but willingly. Certainly this would have been uniquely applicable in the first century context in which Peter was writing, where it was there that leadership in the church not only meant suffering for some parts of the congregations in the Roman Empire, leadership in the church could mean persecution that would require life as a martyr. And you can understand, couldn't you, how many a church leader might not want to do that kind 
of labor. But they might do it out of duty. They might do it out of obligation. They might do it out of compulsion. And Peter's saying, there's no good that comes from any leadership like that. I, mean, I remember playing soccer for a number of years with different guys, and they would often get asked in like these pressers about when they were going to retire from soccer, certainly the, uh, the, the older players. And almost invariably to a man, they would say something like, I'm going to retire when it becomes a job to me. Uh, when playing the game ceases to be fun and it becomes just kind of this compulsory obligation. And perhaps you wonder with me if, if many churches in our time and space don't find the Lord's blessing on their life together because some of the leaders, maybe even more of the leaders than not, they're serving, but not because they want to, but because they have to, serving out of a duty more than delight. And of course, that service out of duty doesn't do anything but shrivel the joy, uh, shrink the contentment, and even, in many ways, hamper the perseverance of leaders in ministry. So he says, rule number one, we need willing leaders. That's what God wants. Rule number two, we need eager leaders. Notice the next contrast in verse two. He says, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Uh, students, the language there of shameful gain is actually, it's about money. It's about people going into ministry to get something from the ministry rather than give something in the ministry. It's why other passages for qualifications for elders in the New Testament speak about not being greedy for dishonest gain. That was common in the first century context. You would have all these false teachers creep into the church thinking they could get some sort of financial comfort uh, from their service. And he says, none of that. Eagerly serve the Lord and shepherd the flock that he has entrusted to you. You know, I thought about this a few months ago when I was sitting down for a meeting with a local church pastor who, who he's ministers at a very large church in the area, and therefore he has a lot of interns and ministry residents under his care. And he was uh, talking to me about one in particular uh, intern that he is having trouble finding a ministerial position for in their denomination. And he said it wasn't for a lack of opportunities, though, with this intern. It was because every position that was open to this intern didn't have a salary sufficient for his personal demands. And of course, I thought to myself, uh, maybe he just needs to read 1 Peter 5, 2 again. And no one gets in the ministry to get something out of it, financially speaking. There are other things, of course, shameful gain that elders and deacons and leaders in the church can pursue. And even the language, isn't it, of eagerness is little more than a synonym for willingness. It's this two-founded and double-folded way in which the, the Lord is telling us that what we need in the church is not only men who are devoted to the work with their delight, but also desirous of the work. But it's that devotion he turns to next. Notice in verse 3, what God wants is not just willing and eager leaders, but holy leaders. He says, not domineering over those in your charge, but shepherd in such a way as to be examples to the flock. Other translations would render domineering as, as lording it over. You know, authority run amok. Uh, one pastor I appreciate, I think, says it uh, quite rightly by way of application when he says, domineering over the flock implies that the elder shepherd can be driven by the love of power. Uh, many a man seeking power can find it in a potentially horrifying way in the church. He goes on to say he gets an ego high from flaunting his authority and prestige and dominance. He needs to be up front. He likes the best seats in the synagogue, as Jesus said. He likes to be addressed with titles. He 
He craves the praise and dependence of men. He goes on to say he may be a, a boisterous domineering sort, or he may manipulate with a feigned pain of a wounded hero, or he may be a consummate politician who measures his words so as to curry favor with the powerful and enhance his security in office. Uh, you, you can be an elder, you can be a deacon, you can be a leader in the church and lord your authority over people and dominate them. Or, what you can be is what God desires. Or you can be what God says you must be, which is a holy example to the flock. Uh, I tend to think whenever we as a church uh, think about future men to serve as office bearers in the congregation, there's one simple hurdle over which every single man must immediately jump from this verse. Which is, do we want him replicated spiritually into the life of the church? And if so, good. There's other qualifications he must meet on top of that. Now, that's not in and of itself sufficient. But if we have a degree of hesitation, I'm not so sure that I want him, spiritually speaking, uh, replicated into the life of the church. We, we certainly have some degree of an immediate answer about whether or not it's right for him to serve in the life of the church at this moment. Because God says what he wants in the church are those who are images, mirrors, examples, models of godliness and holiness. So these are Peter's rules, and you'll see in verse 4, he gives a reward. When the chief shepherd appears, he will receive the unfading crown of glory. Uh, I would imagine that many of you parents know the, the value that can belong to a reward for Different responsibilities, you know. Earlier this week, I thought about it in a funny way. In light of this text, as on Tuesday night, it was quite cold, and we even had a snow flurry up at our house, and we had a chore that needed to be done outside in the midst of all of this kind of freezing wetness that was going on. And one of the kids normally does such a chore, and we knew, well, I mean, it's cold and freezing out there. And so Emily said, well, whoever does the chore gets an extra cookie tonight after dinner. And one of the children immediately raised his hand and said, I'm going, I'm going to do the task outside because the reward, of course, pushed through the, the genuine difficulty that belonged to being outside for the period of time that he had to be outside doing the work in the midst of all that cold and, and wet rain. And the Lord knows, doesn't he, so often, not just for leaders, but for all of his beloved children, that, that we might need something of a reward, a promise of a blessing in the future to see us through the present responsibilities, maybe even the present difficulties. Uh, you, you might be even being here today and, and needing to have something of a, a maturing view on what the Bible says related to rewards in the Christian life. Because certainly what he's saying here, I think, is, is not that this crown that belongs to elders is simply just the realization of final full salvation, just in a general sense, that you're finally invited into the new heavens and the new earth. I think it's actually more particular in terms of, I don't know exactly what it looks like, but certainly taking all the requisite texts together in the New Testament, there's some particular blessing in honor that the Lord has in mind for faithful leaders in the church. And I think that's largely true because of the texts in the New Testament say that he judges with especial strictness and harshness those leaders in the church. And kids, even that language of a crown of glory, it was actually kind of common enough for uh, Peter's hearers at the time. It just uh, thought about this. It was basically like a trophy we would think about today that would go upon an athlete's head when he won an event. And it was this garland, this kind of leafy wreath. 
And if you've ever made such a thing at home, you know, know that a leafy wreath, it eventually decays, it eventually falls apart, it becomes brittle, and it no longer actually communicates what it once did. And Peter's adjusting that metaphor in such a way for the early Christians. They're saying, but God gives his faithful elders and leaders an unfading crown of glory, one that never ceases in the fullness of its blessing and beauty. So what kind of leaders do we want? What kind of leaders do we need? What kind of leaders does God desire? Willing, eager, holy leaders who know that a future blessing awaits them in their faithful service. But he doesn't have only, uh, clearly in the logic of his mind, Peter, the leaders in mind. Because notice what he says now as we turn to the kind of members we want. He says, verse 5, likewise, you who are younger. So he's connecting his instruction here between elders, leaders, and members, older and younger in that way. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. So he's speaking in his mind to those of you in the room today, certainly that we might call kids, we might call students, middle school, high school, or even suppose in certain ways you can include college-aged students in this category of Peter's mind as well. And, and kids especially, I want you to notice, think about it in this way with me this morning, how so much of your early life in the Lord, so much of your early days and years at home, isn't it little more than just an experience of living under authority? You have parents and grandparents. You have teachers and coaches. You have pastors, elders, and deacons. You have governors and presidents. Everywhere you look, someone is authority in your life, according to God's providential command. Now, why is that? Well, because Peter clearly understands, like even the Bible understands, that, that youth is a time for ordinary rebellion against authority. And if you can't learn what it means to submit to the godly authorities that the Lord has placed children and students in your life now, why would you think that you would submit to the Lord's authority in your life? And he's saying what's well, utterly necessary for this kind of pursuit among all of us, look at verse 5 as he continues, is clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. I was just in the hallway uh, during a Sunday school and one of our uh, monitor team volunteers was there getting bundled up to head out to the cold putting on a coat and, and putting on gloves as the wind chill is increasing as the day goes along. And perhaps even in the previous week or so, or maybe even facing the cold of the coming days that supposedly is on the way, you might know the need of rolling out of bed in the morning and one of your first desires is to put on clothes that will keep you warm throughout the day. Uh, there's this wonderful metaphor that belongs to the New Testament about the spiritual life as Life in Christ being one about putting off clothing and putting on certain clothing. You can glance back, because it might just be two pages before in your Bible, when, when Peter talks about what we must put off in our life in Jesus Christ. Kids, if you will, clothes of sin that we have to take off. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, put away all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. And now in chapter 5, in its place, put on clothing. Uh, when, you, when you wake up tomorrow, spiritually speaking, that great urgent need that you have is to put on humility, what Augustine called the mother of all grace. And to, to cement the centrality of humility in our minds in terms of what is necessary for members to have, for the church that we must be, uh, well, Peter gives us three different foundations, at least three different foundations for the vitality of humility. You notice he gives a declaration at the end of verse 5. Simply quoting from Proverbs 3, 4, God opposes the proud, 
but gives grace to the humble. I hope you understand it's, it's a terrifying thing. It should be in your heart a terrifying thing for Scripture to give this sentence in Proverbs 3 verse 4 and the New Testament to repeatedly emphasize it. That to stand against an infinitely holy, an infinitely just, an infinitely good God with a heart of arrogance is to find him opposing you. And like a little dandelion flower has no possibility to stand against a 60 mile an hour wind without blowing off those seeds. So can no person prideful and arrogant stand before the Lord. Peter's a good preacher. He warns, but he also welcomes. See, the declaration again reiterates, he gives grace to the humble. Uh, This isn't saving grace as I would want you to understand it from other texts in the New Testament. It's more of sanctifying grace. For in the midst of your trials, in the midst of your sufferings, in the midst of your difficulties, there's this sustaining grace uh, that belongs to God's people who are humble under the hardship. Which is clear enough as he continues from the declaration to this promised exaltation. Notice verse 6. Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that at the proper time he may exalt you. The original language there with the command of verse 6 is actually more passive. You could translate it as something more like, be humbled under God's mighty hand. So again, the context of suffering there in 1 Peter's letter is most important. Be humbled underneath the hardship and the suffering that faces you. I was having to read a lot of letters this week preparing for this project that I have to complete later on this spring. And they're letters that just belong to these old pastors that would write back and forth to each other some 150 years ago, letters throughout the week and the months. And, and one of the ones that I came across this week spoke about uh, this particular pastor in a season of sickness and sorrow and genuine suffering. And he was writing to a friend saying that the suffering had come, quote, to humble and prove me. And it certainly is is a divine point of maturity to recognize that God uses suffering to humble his people. Be humbled underneath God's frowning providence, Peter says. Because in due time, he's going to lift you up. He's going to exalt you. We were thinking about this just last Lord's Day evening in Philippians chapter 1, where Paul speaks about grace being given in suffering. That the Lord has granted to you. He's graced you with suffering. Uh, Perhaps you sit in here today and uh, you know the present pain and power of hardship, of suffering, difficulty, trial, trouble, whatever it may be. Uh, Do you understand that this might be a divine reason for the Lord to humble you, for you to grow in that grace that is found for the humble? So it's not just, of course, a declaration, a promised exaltation. There's an affirmation, verse 7, as he calls us to cast all our anxieties on him because he cares for you. Uh, children, you can think about that verb even casting if you, if you like to go fishing. Like casting out the line upon the water. Throwing it out there in the same way that you're supposed to cast your cares. Cast your anxieties. Cast your worries, doubts, and fears. Cast them upon the Lord because he loves you. And do you notice in, in Peter's mind, there is a clear logical connection between anxiety and arrogance that you might be plagued by anxiety. And at spiritual core, Peter says, you're just letting pride run amok in your life. Oh, how would that work? 
Well, certainly it's because you're anxious about it in the apostle's mind because you think you can do something about it. And only the Lord can do something about it. You're anxious about it because you think you know what would be better for your life. Well, the Lord knows what's best for your life in all wisdom. You're not to feel guilty over these anxieties when you cast them upon the Lord. But you certainly should find the Spirit's conviction if you hold on to those anxieties as though you can actually do anything about them. When the Lord says, give them to me, I care for you. What kind of members do we want, Peter says? Humble, carefree Christians in the church. That's the kind of leaders we want. That's the kind of members we want. That's the kind of church we want. Now, I love this story that Benjamin Warfield, B.B. Warfield, he's a well-known theologian, late 1800s, early 1900s at Princeton Seminary. He would often tell this story to emphasize the, the use of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I don't think it actually ever happened, but nevertheless, he told the story, and it's illustrative of the truth that I, I want you to see this morning. He, he talked about this, this old U.S. citizen that went out to a town on the Western Front in the 19th century, and if you know anything about towns on the Western Front and frontier in the 19th century, they're kind of places of chaos and just brawls and all kinds of wild stuff happening in the Wild West. And this old man went out to one of these towns and noticed over the course of a few days that amidst all the chaos there in Main Street, there was this young man that would just walk up and down with total resolve, with, with, with total calm. And Warfield eventually said that the old man went up to him and placed his, his hand on the young man's uh, back shoulder and turned him around and then poked him right in the chest and said, what's the chief end of man? Oh, and the young man said, well, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And the old man says, I knew you were a shorter catechism boy just by your walk, is what he said. And it's illustrative of a truth that you find over and over in Scripture, don't you? The storm shows a person's true spirituality. The storm of suffering shows a, a church's genuine devotion to the Lord. Peter's saying here to his early hearers and readers, that storm of suffering that has struck you reveals what kind of leaders you must be. Reveals what kind of members you must be. So as we close, what I want to do is give you two summary things that you ought to see in this church if we're growing according to God's word. That we want to see growing according to this word in 1 Peter chapter 5 as life continues as sojourners and exiles here on earth. Number one, you would see, uh, you would see certainly an eternal perspective do you see how three times he talks about it in seven verses? Verse one, he says, I'm a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Verse four, when the chief shepherd appears, you're going to receive that unfading crown. He says the same thing even in verse six, that at the proper time, that being the day of the Lord, he will exalt you. He can't go very far into his instruction without recognizing that eternity is on the way and it absolutely informs everything we do in the church. Maybe it's one of the principal reasons that God does bring us suffering in our life. To loosen your grip on this vanishing world. To tighten your grip on the world that can never be shaken. And the kingdom that is coming. When hardships arise, when difficulties confront us, when troubles come. A church that knows this truth is a church that's growing in eternal perspective. But lastly, it's not just that. It's also growing in a Christ-like pattern. Yeah, you know, kids, did, did you see where, where Jesus shows up in the text, even though his name's not mentioned? 
Verse 4, when the chief shepherd appears. It's a word to shepherds to model themselves after the shepherd. He's already used that language at the end of chapter 2, referring to Jesus Christ as the shepherd and overseer, elder of your soul. Uh, Do you know what willingness and eagerness looks like? Do you want to know what devotion to holiness looks like in Christian leadership? Just look to the Lord Jesus Christ, that good shepherd, that great shepherd, that chief shepherd who led from the front with such love, patience, and care that he laid down his life for the sheep. Do you want to know what humility looks like? A shepherd laying down his life for the sheep according to God's word because of humility. He didn't count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but in humble obedience, he obeyed even to the point of death on the cross. So if you're in here today and you're not a Christian, one of the best things uh, you should do in an ordinary week, you should be able. We want to be a church like this. You come into a local church like Redeemer Presbyterian Church, and what you see The Spirit's sovereign power guiding your eyes and heart. You see little models and mirrors of Jesus when you look at the leaders, when you look at the members. You see the chief shepherd growing in the hearts of those in this congregation. As leaders know, what God requires, what God wants. Willingness, eagerness, and holiness. And every member knows what God wants. That carefree humility that, of course, is found in a Savior who cares for you. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do ask that you would give us grace, that you would give us mercy, that you would give us your, your sovereign tenderness and comfort, that by your Spirit we might abound in these graces, that our lives would continually be conformed to your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, as we stand-